You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, I do want to welcome you to worship again this morning. I'm so delighted that you're here where we get to do and be church. We have been studying in the Gospel of John since September of last year. And now at long last, we are drawing to the closing months of March, which means the chronology of Jesus's earthly ministry begins to slow down. Now we're going hour by hour. In a few hours in John's narrative telling where we are this morning in the text, in a mere matter of hours, Jesus will go to his death. And so John really slows down the telling to make sure we, as his readership, really begins to understand and it is impressed into us and onto us the enormity of what's going on. And so this morning, we get to talk about a topic that candidly, I don't think I have ever as a pastor done a good enough job of proclaiming the greatness and the glories of it. It is this idea called union with Christ. Union with Christ is the greatest conceivable thing in the cosmos. Union with Christ was the topic, the idea, the notion that all of the Protestant reformers wrote about 500 years ago and said, hey, this is really the thing that the church is about. It's about a bunch of people who are in union with Christ. Very, very different from a system of doing stuff. It is about people who supernaturally, mysteriously, literally experience and enjoy a union with Christ. This is amazing. I don't know who you are, don't really care who you are. It ought to be amazing to us that a fallen, corrupted, sin-soaked soul can actually enjoy and experience union and communion with the king of the aforementioned universe. In perfect bliss, harmony, and life experience, that is union with Christ. This is the gospel this is actually the fullness of the gospel. What it actually means to be a Christian is one who is one with Jesus. And I've never, I don't think, done a big enough deal about proclaiming union with Christ because I've never actually preached on John 15 before. I've taught it, I've referenced it, I've used it, but spending the hours that I have this week in John 15, I had to walk away several times from the text and just go, I tap out, I yield. It's too much for me. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't wait to go back to it, but I also dreaded it because I knew that it was gonna be too much for me. And so I'd go back and I'd be like, this is, this is unbelievable. How come I've never seen this? How come I've read this? I've studied this, I've taught this. I've never gotten this before. It is such a massive deal. So I'm gonna do my dead level best to invite you into what I believe the Lord showed me this week through a familiar passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Our overarching idea has to do with the fact that Jesus is gonna say the word abide over and over and over again. This is a familiar passage to the ladies of Bethel Bible Church because they've been going to abide conferences at our various campuses for many months now, so it's very near and dear to our heart. I've even titled this message Abide because Jesus is gonna use the word abide 10 times in 12 verses. So obviously it's central, it's key, it's core, it's repeated that many times. It's about abiding. 
Now, some of the ladies who have been to all of our Abide conferences are probably going, oh yeah, I've heard all this before. Let's see what you got. I'm not trying to produce anything new. I'm not trying to nuance anything that's been said. I just want to work through with you what I believe the Spirit of God has been leading me through the Word of God. That's it. But I have arrived at a big idea of what I think this paragraph and this passage is all about, and it goes like abiding is enacting our union with Christ. Abiding, what does it mean to abide? It is enacting our union with Christ. It's doing it. It is already a thing, abiding, which is gonna be said 10 times in this passage. Abide, 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 abide. What does that mean? It means enacting our union with Christ, doing that which already is. Now, as we get started, I'm just gonna read chapter 15. I'm gonna read straight through verses one to 11, and then I'm gonna try to unpack this as best I can in the time that we have. John chapter 15, beginning in verse one. Jesus writes, I am the true vine and my father, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. What does all of this passage mean? We have to recall that all of this has taken place in what we call the upper room discourse. Chapters 13 through 17 are all in one effective setting. And we also have to remember that chapter 14, which we studied last week, where Jesus is our preparation. He goes to prepare a place for us and it's him. He is in fact our preparation. At the end of chapter 14, verse 31, he says, let us go from here. It's time for us to go. My hour has drawn near. In a matter of hours, I will be dead. But the last thing he says in chapter 14, verse 31 is, all of this is at my Father's command. God the Father is directing and is doing all of this. I am merely here on his errand so that the world will know that I love the Father. Now keep that in the very back of your mind. That's gonna surface near the very end this morning. So all of that is Jesus saying that this is God the Father doing a thing. Now that's really important to help us interpret chapter 15 accurately. He's just finished and ignore the chapter break because they're still in the upper room. He says, come, let us go. It's not clear if they actually get up and as they're walking down to the garden of Gethsemane, he's telling them chapter 15. We don't know, John doesn't say, so it doesn't matter. The point is, all of this is one thought that Jesus has for his disciples. The point as he closes chapter 14 is that God the Father is the active party. He's the active person in all that's about to be said. And we have to remember that, super important. 
All this is going to take place. Jesus is going to tell his disciples there in verse 1. Let me read it again. Chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is going to introduce a metaphor. And he's going to say that he is the true vine. All throughout the Old Testament, Ezekiel 15 and other places, Israel is always described as the vine. Israel's the vine, Israel's the vine. But here Jesus says it's a new thing. It's a new era. A new system has occurred. I am true Israel. I am the bringer. I am the giver. I am the presenter of the messianic community of God. It's me. It's not a nation. It's me. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that, the, that Israel was hoping that would fully come to fruition. Jesus says it has, and it's me. He himself is the one who invites people in to himself, true Israel, the Messianic community. And we have here in verse 1, the second member of this cast. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. God the father is the vine dresser. He's the one who is the active person in all that we're going to learn. Now, this is Jesus giving a symbolic metaphor. We sort of know that literarily, instinctively, we know that Jesus is not actually a shrubbery. Like, we get that. Of course, he's using a symbolic metaphor. And as all metaphors do, this one will break down over time. What generally happens is people try to overextend and overreach the metaphor and make it do some things and say some things that it simply cannot and does not say. It's a metaphor and it means a thing. If we try to make it say more than the metaphor is intended to use, as Jesus is using it, then we'll make it say something that's actually wrong. And let me just say, entire denominations are established on overstretching this metaphor. So this is a big deal. Just to give you a quick example from the text itself, in chapter 15, verse 10, we've already read verse 10. Verse 10 goes like this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in him. But the vine does not abide in the vine dresser. We know that. The vine does not abide in the vine dresser. That would be a silly metaphor. That's weird. It doesn't work. And so clearly, this is merely an example he's giving us here in verse 1. So what is exactly the point of this metaphor that he starts in verse 1? Now, it's crucially important. Because most of us, if we've been in church long enough or if we've studied our Bibles, we hear John 15 and we think, ah, vine and branches. How do I know that that's the case? Because I have encountered about seven of you this week and you've said, oh, John 15's this Sunday, vine and the branches. And then the seven of you that I have encountered have had to hear me go, well, actually, and those seven of you who've heard me actually already preach the sermon, but stay anyway, okay? <laughs> Sit tight, Newt. Many of you I've encountered downstairs in the foundry or other places, and you said, oh, John 15, the vine and the branches. Yes, but that doesn't come until verse 5. We kind of want Jesus to just get on with it and get to the good stuff where it's about me. Come on, come on, come on, verse 5. But no, verses 1 through 4 are the point of the passage, and so I'm going to spend the requisite amount of time in verses 1 through 4 because that's where Jesus spends his time, and it's very, very strange. This chapter and this paragraph is actually a whole lot more about a whole lot more than just the vine and the branches. And to understand why Jesus goes into this metaphor, into this narrative, we need verse two. In verse two, we're gonna hear about vine dressing. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
And here's the entire point of the passage. That there is a vine dresser. It is God the Father and he is active and he's doing stuff. And he has two primary jobs. He's the vine dresser. He takes away that which does not bear fruit. The Father is the vine dresser. He prunes that which does bear fruit. Notice the similarity. In both cases, it involves cutting. In both cases, there is a removal of something that wants to be there. And so from the outside scope, it looks very, very similar. Sometimes it's difficult to tell which is which, but the father is active. He is the active party and the active person. He wants us to know that there are two very important works that the vine dresser does. His point is explaining this to the disciples as he is merely hours from his own death. He wants them to be prepared for what's coming next. Our abiding in the vine our bearing fruit is amplified. It is assisted when we understand what the vine dresser, the father, is actually up to, what he is doing with us. In other words, we have to get this. Jesus says, if you're going to abide in me, which I'm going to command you over and over again, if you're going to bear fruit, then you have to understand fundamentally and foundationally what the father, the vine dresser, is actually up to. So again, what does the vine dresser do? One, he removes fruitless branches. And so there is destruction. What he says here in verse two is preparing us for what he's going to elaborate on in verse six. Those branches wither, they are gathered up, they are thrown out, and they are burned. So the vine dresser is about destruction, that is judgment. Some of it now, all of it later. And the vine dresser prunes fruitful branches so that they can bear more fruit. So there is destruction of unfruitful branches. There is pruning or discipline of fruitful branches. We have to know that about what God is doing in our lives. So we have a question now here that has bothered the church for the last 2,000 years. Who are the fruitless branches in this metaphor? This is, again, is a church splitter, and it has for thousands of years, but it doesn't need to be. Does it mean that a person who is as Jesus says, quote, in me, does it mean that that person can lose their salvation? Can a person who is in union with Christ experience the loss of that union? Now, if we had hours and hours, I would walk back through the gospel of John that we've studied thus far since September. And I would show you from chapter one and chapter two and three and four and primarily in five and in six that absolutely not. One who is born of God, born from above, born again, cannot be unborn. One who is given by God to the Son, by the Father to the Son, can't be ungiven. God already has a people, Jesus says in chapter 6, and God gives them to Jesus. They are God's already before they come to Christ. And not a single one slips away. Not a single one gets out. Not a single one removes himself from union with Christ. Not a single one. And so what Jesus has labored so hard throughout this entire gospel, what John has taken great pains and great lengths to establish is that, no, there are those who can never be out of union with Christ. At the same time, there are those who will claim to be believers, who are not true believers. There are those who claim to be disciples, but they fall away and they are not true disciples. Doesn't mean they were Christians and they lost their faith. It means they were essentially professors. They said they were professors, but they were not possessors. 
They did not have the Spirit. They were not abiding. That's John's point. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the way you know a true Christian is, are they indwelled by God's Spirit? The Gospel of John says, how do you know a true Christian? Are they abiding? So yeah, this is a really, really big deal. We looked at this already uh, many, many weeks ago in chapter 6. There are true disciples, those who follow Jesus, and then there are those who aren't true disciples. Judas is a disciple of Jesus, and yet he's also called a devil. Clearly, he is not abiding. Then in chapter 8, we are told that there are people who are believers. They believe and agree with the words of Jesus. That's in John chapter 8, verse 30. But seven verses later in chapter 8, verse 37, we're told that they no longer believe. It's not that they lost their salvation. They agreed with Jesus' words, and they were looking for a nudge or a boost to their own life. We even see that extensively in our day and age. We call it moral therapeutic deism. I just need God to give me a boost. I just need God to give me a nudge. I just need God to take my life and make it a little better. Moral therapeutic deism, which is the exact opposite of union with Christ. And anyone who is merely looking for some moral therapeutic deism where God just gives me a boost or a nudge, they will fall away when the Father comes with the clips. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. I am not interested in that at all. Bearing fruit? No, 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 no. I need you to give me a boost. I need you to give me a nudge. I need you to take me and just make me a little better. Those are not true believers. Those are not true disciples. And the gospel of John is full of those kinds of categories, even if it makes us uncomfortable. So can a person have union with Christ and then lose it, be cut off? The answer from John's entire gospel is a resounding no. Absolutely not. And we're going to see in the rest of this chapter how John's going to make that absolutely clear. Now, Jesus starts with this illustration in his metaphor because he wants us to know that God the Father is active in his church. Whether or not we sense it, feel it, or even recognize it, God is active in his church. He is actively working to remove false Christians. God the Father is active, finding those who are a sham, and he's actively removing them. I'm going to tell you candidly, transparently, I used to get so devastated when someone would come to the church, they would rise and get so excited, and then they would just leave. And I'd be like, what? what? It's me, isn't it? It's me. It's got to, of course it's me. Of course it's me. And it probably was as well. However, if there is sham there, I now absolutely love the truth that God is removing false believers from our midst addressing the sham and he's also actively working to prune and refine to true christians and so now when i hear reports of oh the phone rang it was the doctor the report was bad i go oh wow i don't get giddy i don't get excited like yay bless god yeah wow god is working in this person's life to prune them and it's going to hurt but it's worth it god is pruning them so As Jesus is a mere hours from his own death, he is telling his disciples, I want you to be prepared for pruning. You are to expect it. And then there's this incredible truth that I think most of us probably don't internalize, or at least I don't. Maybe all of you have gotten this for decades, but it just landed on me this week like, whoa. The ministry of Jesus to us 
while the Father is pruning us, and it hurts, and sometimes we don't understand, and we certainly don't like it, but Jesus has a ministry to us. While we are being pruned, he himself is giving us his very life in ours. That's union with Christ. This is what he's gonna talk about later on when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We are connected to, grafted to him, living his life source. So while the Father is pruning us, we have the life flowing of Jesus in and through us as if he is living his life through us because he is. It's an incredible ministry. But not only that, it goes the other direction as well. While we are experiencing union with Christ and his life flowing through ours, our Father is working on the outside of us to prepare us to bear more fruit. It's both. While the Son of God is living through us by his Spirit, the Father is pruning things away that are not bearing fruit. What kind of a God would love us so much that he would do that much for us? This is what Jesus is telling his disciples that they are going to be experiencing. Now, we would sort of think at that point, God would say, okay, here's the next thing. I'm the vine, you're the branches, but not yet. He's got to make one more thing incredibly clear that is not very clear. Chapter 15, verse three is a massive verse that often gets treated like a parenthesis. Jesus is in an agricultural metaphor. I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. You bear fruit, you don't bear fruit. And then in verse three, he switches gears and kind of throws a curveball that candidly, most of the time people go, eh, I don't really get that. I'm just gonna move on and find where I'm the branches because this verse is about me. Well, it's actually not. Chapter 15, verse three. Jesus does something really bizarre here. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Say what now? We're talking about branches. We're talking about cutting. We're talking about pruning. Why does Jesus suddenly jump metaphors and say that I am already clean? Because Jesus is trying to blow their minds and by extension, he's gonna blow our mind. So just stick with me for just a second. He tells them that they are clean already and it seems like it doesn't fit and that they are clean because of the word he has spoken. The word in this case is logos. The totality of his teaching, his exegesis, his revealing of the father. We've studied several times where Jesus says already in this gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What I'm like, he's like. You wanna know what God is like? Look at me. You don't know what God would do? Look what I do. You wanna know what God would say? Listen to what I say. And so Jesus says to them, you are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is the distinctly Christian aspect of this passage. Verse three, that you are clean already. Now, Jesus is going to explain this a little bit more. They are clean already. What in the world does this mean? Why does Jesus move to this kind of language when he's been using this agricultural metaphor? Hear it again. God prunes you and you're already clean. Let me just walk through this little field trip as quickly as I possibly can because this, I hope, is going to open the lock that makes this passage make a whole lot more practical sense to us. We are intended to realize that when Jesus says you are clean already, it is supposed to flicker back to what happens at the very beginning of the upper room discourse in chapter 13. Now, we studied this a couple of weeks ago. Mike preached for us through John 13, but you've slept since then, so let me just quickly remind you. The word for clean is kathairos in Greek. It's where we get our word for catharsis. It is a purging and emptying until something is clean. 
Jesus says in John 15, 3, you are kathairos, you are clean already. What's going on? This is supposed to remind us because it's almost an exact same quote of what Jesus says to Peter in John chapter 13. You might remember the, st- the scene in the story. They're at the upper room, they're having Passover meal, and Jesus stands up, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and goes to wash Peter's feet. Blech. I mean, it's dusty and it's dirty back then, right? Not even a Roman slave can be commanded to wash his master's feet. That is beneath them. And the sovereign king and creator of the universe wraps a towel around his waist and he goes to this fisherman's feet. Blech. And he says, I'm gonna wash you, Peter. And Peter says, no way, you'll not wash me. Are you kidding? That is beneath you, master. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. To which Peter says, well, then fine. He says what I would say. Well, then fine, wash all of me. Wash my hands and my head as well, my thinking and my doing. And Jesus says, no, the one who's had a bath doesn't need to be washed. He is clean already. Now let me wash your feet. And it seems bizarre. Peter, you are clean already. Now let me wash you. But not all of you are clean. There is a disciple here who is not a disciple who is not clean. He is not Kathiros, Judas, who is a devil. Peter, you are already clean. Now let me clean you. In other words... Part of the mark of a disciple is recognizing that he is clean and a sign of that cleanliness is being willing to be washed in the present by the Son. Jesus says something astonishing to Peter. Peter, in my Father's eyes, you are clean already. Now let him prune you. Back to chapter 15, the word for prune is the exact same word as clean, kathairos. You already are clean. Allow my Father to clean you. He says it to Peter in chapter 13. You already are clean. Allow me to clean you. That boggles our minds because how can something practically and really and truly be both already and not yet? Because we are time-bound beings. We experience the succession of moments, the passage of time, but God does not. God exists outside of time because time is a part of creation and he is creator. So from God's windshield, if you will, God's vantage point, he sees creation, he sees the cross, he sees the second coming of Christ all in one vantage point. So from the viewpoint of God the Father, you're clean already and you live in a world that is construed by time, and so you have to go through the succession of moments, so he's going to clean you as you become who you already are. And that is distinctly Christian. You and I get to become that which we already are. And so when I hear people talk about, well, I'm just gonna go to heaven one day when I die, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. My Bible from the table of contents to the maps is telling such a much grander story than that. We are in the process of becoming that which we already are in God's mind. This is why Paul can say, he seated us in the heavenlies, past tense in Ephesians. How can that be? Because I'm still pretty sure I'm here. Because we already are clean and he is cleaning us. And so let me put a very fine point on this. Part of the sign that we are clean is our receptivity, our acceptance of the cleaning in this life and appreciating it for what it is. Ah, this is the secret to peace. 
when things come at us, not if, when things come at us in this life, we go, oh, oh, this is my father cutting stuff away so that I can bear more fruit, so that those around me will be nourished, so that God will be glorified. Not, oh, come on, why this interruption, God? I was doing so good, things were going so well, and you had to let this thing happen with my finances, with my relationships, with my health, with my whatever. Yes, the vine dresser is pruning he is cleaning. And part of the mark of someone who is already clean is their understanding, their acceptance, they're receiving the pruning of the vine dresser. It's that big of a deal. Abiding, I want to remind us, is enacting our union with Christ. This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is what God is doing, which finally at long last brings us to verse four and we get our first imperative. We finally get something for us to do. Chapter 15, verse four, again, he says, abide in me. That's the instruction. That's the imperative. That's the commandment. Now, some of us are going, yeah, 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 but just tell me how to dress, what not to drink, what to wear, where to go, what not to say. No, 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 no. The commandment is simply abide in me. And we are intended to receive imperatives the way disciples receive imperatives, which is considering the indicative. Anytime we receive an instruction, we are always to look before then and say, okay, well, what has God done? That's the indicative. That explains and informs what I am to do. God is the vine dresser. The son is the vine abide. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so here we are. We are to abide. Receive the pruning as evidence that we are pruned. Peter, receive the cleaning as evidence that you are clean already. Look at your world. Look at your life through this lens. When the suffering comes, ah, it's pruning. And during that stretch, during that season of suffering, I have the life of Christ flowing in and through me. That is abiding. We cannot bear fruit on our own. We have to be cognitively, diligently aware and reminded of his life flowing through ours. So what does it actually mean and look like to abide? Well, I'm gonna get there as a conclusion in just a moment for now. I wanna reread verses five through 11 because the interpretive key for understanding this whole paragraph is gonna be found in verse 11. Let me start again in verse five because this is the familiar piece of this passage to us. Understanding all of those things now, we come to verse five. If anyone, oh sorry, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Ah, finally, we're mentioned in this metaphor, in this story. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You have to be aware of your union with Christ. His life flowing through you, you being in Christ as far as the Father is concerned, that's when fruit is born. Not saying a few words at a camp in the seventh grade and waiting to die so that you can go to heaven. You'll never find that experience in your Bible. It is about union with Christ daily, moment by moment. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is to be thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is a horrifying passage. 
Those who are not clean already are gathered and thrown out. Verse 7, very interesting thing here in verse 7. He's going to talk about the importance of prayer. We're circle, we will circle back to that here in just a moment. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so Prove to be my disciples. There it is. When we abide, fruit is produced in our lives and God is glorified. That's the aim and that's the proof of true disciples that they produce fruit. It's as Eugene Peterson said a long time ago, it is about a long obedience in the same direction. Does that mean there won't be times that we sin? Of course not. Does that mean there won't be seasons of struggle? Of course we will be. But it means that one who is already clean will always abide. They will ultimately continue on in becoming what they already are. Well, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. And therefore, we are to live in the midst of that reality. And the illustration of what he says there is in verse 10. We are to look and love like Jesus because Jesus looks and loves like the Father. A life in union that is mutually interdwelling. And then verse 11, these things, what things? Verses 1 to 10. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I want to remind you, Jesus, in a mere matter of hours, will be arrested, he will be taken, he will be mocked, he will be scourged, front and back, he will be beaten, his beard ripped out, spit upon, nailed to a cross, he will be forsaken by the Father, in a matter of hours. And what is this person's primary priority is that they would have joy and have it to the full. Now, friends, ladies, gentlemen, that's the kind of king my soul is desperate for, who is that concerned for me that that is on his mind when he knows that which he is about to experience. Why? Why is he telling them this preparation for pruning just hours before his death and the answer to the question is in verse 11 he's given them all these teachings so that they will understand what it means so that they can enjoy this life with his enjoying look closely what he says i want you to enjoying i want your enjoying to be my enjoying we are to have the joy of jesus this is so much more so much more uh, complex and multifaceted then God just wants you to be happy it's not that Jesus wants your enjoying to be his enjoying let me remind us this is the second member of the Godhead Trinity the creator of the cosmos who has an infinite capacity for joy because he is himself God and he's telling these knuckle-dragging fishermen and carpenters I want your enjoying to be my enjoying this is amazing this is the gospel. I don't want you to merely slug it out through life. I want your union with me to be so tight, so interdwelling and so bound that your enjoying is my enjoying. How much joy can the Son of God actually experience? I don't know. But I am intended to discover it. And it will take all eternity for me to grow into that glorious, 
wondrous splendor of enjoying the joy of Jesus. Abiding means to not disconnect from his life and start trying to enjoy this life with my joy. Let me just say that again because I got punched right in the throat about 27 times this week as that occurred to me. Abiding means not disconnecting from the Son of God and trying to enjoy this life with my own joy. That is fruitlessness and it withers and I feel nothing. But when I abide, I am enjoying this life with his joy and I cannot wait to live the next second. That's what it means to abide. Abiding is enacting our union with Christ. So let me just very quickly in the time that I have, let me just give you four implications, four summary points on what it actually means to abide. And I'm gonna take them straight from this text. Number one, abiding is enjoying the joy of Jesus. Now that requires a a mindfulness. That requires a feeling, an awareness, a diligence, a persistent turning my eyes toward Jesus, abiding. It's not a list of things I could do because you know what, I could probably go and do that and then I could compare myself to how you're doing and I'd be doing a little bit better because I'm a little bit better than you and then I'd feel better about myself and then I would be fruitless and miserable and wither. No, 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 abiding is enjoying the joy of Jesus. This is why Nehemiah in chapter eight, verse 10 can say something like this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not merely a needle point that you find at a Christian bookstore. It's preparing us for what Jesus will say in John 15. The joy of the Lord literally is my strength. His enjoying of that which he has created is my joy. That's abiding. We are to search for what would would Jesus enjoy? We're to thirst for it, hunger for it. What would Jesus enjoy? I'm gonna pursue that with all that I am, all that I have, all that I've got, and then I want to accept his invitation to enjoy it with him. (laughs) I don't know about what most of you think about when you think about Christians. Whatever news network you watch, I am almost never presented with a Christian who is enjoying their life and the world around them with the joy of Jesus. I'm hearing political rhetoric, which is off-putting to the rest of the world at large. But when Christians begin to enjoy their life and their world with the joy of Jesus, man, there's a spiritual gravity that draws in the whole world. This was Jesus' plan for his disciples, even though they didn't quite get it yet. But after he is raised, they get it. And they boldly go with joy and peace. Not only that, there's a second thing. Abiding is loving with the love of Jesus. We get this from verses nine and 10. His entire earthly life, Jesus is, he was operating with and in the love of the Father. Do you remember how chapter 14 ended? All of this is at my Father's command so that the world will know that I love the Father. Abiding is loving with the love of Jesus. Loving what Jesus loves is loving what the Father loves. And looking at the world and our lives that way is transformative. What does Jesus love? Mm, I don't know. People who are unlovely. How much he loves me. You don't know. I know. But I know the Father loves me because he sent the Son to save me. 
We are to love with the love of Jesus. Look around, what does Jesus love? I don't know, that guy, he can't really improve my station in life. He can't really accessorize me. That's not loving like Jesus, that's loving like another character in our Bible. Abiding is loving with the love of Jesus. Number three, abiding is loving others. Ah, here it comes, others. Ah, oh, you knew it was coming. Abiding is loving others. This is so crucial. I could spend literally months on it. I won't. We have a second service upcoming. Let me just say this. Being loved is what this world craves so desperately and they don't even know it. Now we try to call it community in our day and age because it's less threatening, it's more inviting, but it is loving others because the vast majority of our global population at their core, and any psychotherapeutic counselor will tell you this, they don't feel as though they are lovable. From whatever happened in their family, whatever happened in their backstory, their, their, their heritage of abuse or whatever, most of our population does not feel lovable, does not feel lovely. But we as Christians, living the life of Jesus, abiding in the branch as the vine dresser prunes us, we are to love like Jesus would. It's the most incredible gift. When we study our Bibles, God speaks to us. When we pray, we speak to God. When we evangelize and do missions, we are speaking and loving unbelievers. But loving one another is the distinctly Christian thing that we are to do. And by the way, let me just say, that's astonishing. You might struggle with this. We're a Bible church, I get that. But if we don't do this one well, love others, then the other three will inevitably implode. See also the first epistle of John. We have to love one another or the other three fall by the wayside. Love one another. And just to make sure we get that, let me now read verses 12 to 17. Because this is the whole point of verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment. He's only given one command so far, and it is to abide. Now he's going to nuance it and fine tune it just a bit. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. I have chosen to move my life to the unlovely. I have chosen to move my life to the undeserving. I have chosen to move my life to pursue your good above my own. I don't know many churches that are characterized by that. You guys are pretty awesome. But there's always room for an increase. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, which is what? Love one another and abide. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is union with Christ, the extension, the invitation to abiding. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask as the father in my name he may give it to you these things i command you so that <laughs> you will love one another this is what it means to be a disciple we love others fourth point about abiding abiding is not passive 
Abiding is not passive. We see it in verse seven, we see it in verse 16. We are to be diligently praying, conversing, speaking to and listening to the Father. We are to ask our God and our Father to remove all from us that is not of him and produce that which will bring him great glory, that is fruit, even if it hurts because it is an expression of worship. My God, you are worth this. Remove from me, cut it. And if it requires a medical issue or a financial crisis or relational strife, you are worth it because you see me as clean. Clean me. See, pruning is the job of the vine dresser. Prayer is the job of the branch. It is not passive. We don't merely let go and let God. No, no, no. There is an activity to abiding, and it is prayer. When we ask those kinds of things, he tells us in verse 7 and in verse 16, he will do it because it is precisely his desire and his will because in his mind we are clean already and we get to participate actively in what he is doing to clean us in the already and in the not yet. We might say that prayer is the verbal and visceral action of abiding. How do I abide? I don't know. How's your prayer life? Oh, I don't have one of those. I just need God to do some stuff. That's a moral therapeutic deism, and it's not real. It never has worked in the history of humankind. Abiding is enacting our union with Christ. It's Jesus' final instruction to his disciples before he departs to make preparation in his own body. He knows best. He knows more about me than I know. And he cares more about my fruit bearing than I care about my convenience. Do you know that? He knows best. And what he wants for me is his joy, not even my joy. He wants his joy in me. His greatest desire for his disciples is that they abide in him. Continue on and do not grow weary. He is worth our abiding. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. In Christ, we thank you that you are the great vine dresser and that you are not distant, you're not distracted, you're not disinterested, you're not even disappointed. You are active. You are preparing this church for defection you are implementing discipline on the people of this church so that we bear fruit, so that others will be drawn to you, so that you will be glorified. May you continue, and may we have wisdom and courage to abide. Father, if there's one here this morning who is not clean already, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? May they be grafted in as a branch into him, the true vine. And would you continue, Father, to dress, to cultivate, to clean and to prune the rest of us who are in Christ. May we ever increasingly enjoy and experience union with your son Jesus, now and for all eternity. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks so much for being here. I'm gonna ask you to do one more thing for me. I need you to stand. I'm gonna give a quick word of benediction. I wanna remind you that at the conclusion of every service, first hour and second hour, there's always someone up here who's willing and ready to pray with you. They would love to pray with you about whatever is going on in your life, perhaps a pruning, perhaps something that you've heard this morning, whatever it is, Colleen's here this morning. She's a phenomenal beseecher, uh, intercessor in prayer, so I would encourage you to come. But I wanna leave us with a benediction this morning from Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 and 19, because I think it is the encapsulation of what Jesus is talking about here in John 15. This is Paul's benediction to the church at Ephesus, chapter three, verses 14 and following. Uh, 
Paul says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May that be your life this week. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.